Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today I have my good buddy with me, Isaac Morehouse. Isaac Morehouse is the founder of Praxis, is probably how you know him. He's been on the Fox News Channel being interviewed about his alternative to going to college. And he's here to talk to me about a number of things, some of which is going to be uh, maybe about college and also about career. It's probably going to be more where we spend our time talking. Isaac, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, man. So you you happen to be one of those (laughs) people in my life who get me going in the right direction whether or not I know it's the direction I'm already going and I'm like, I just need that little push or whether it's like, no, you got to be rethinking the way you, the way you're doing this or whatever, like all the things that you put out on your blog, the things that you've done in like podcast interviews, things you've written about, all the kinds of things that you like, even on social media and stuff. I'm like, wow, Isaac's, Isaac's got really wise advice. And and I'm pretty sure, and I'm pretty sure you're younger than me. So that's really impressive too. Uh, But you, you just kind of empower me to get going. You know, it's like, I don't know. You're an accomplice to me, uh, you know, jumping <laughs> off that cliff. I'm about to, I'm like, uh, should I jump? And you're like, yeah, do it, man, here. <laughs> and then I do. And then it's like, oh, well, this, this isn't so bad. So you, uh, I don't know. Why, why is it that you probably, I'm probably not the only person in your life that you, you do that for. You know, it's funny. Um, by the way, I, I always, I'm happy to take credit when things go well. If they don't go well, I had nothing to do with it. So it's... <laughs> That's good. That sounds good to me. <laughs> no, this is this is one of those things where somebody once told me a long time ago, um, hey, you know, here's an exercise you can do to try to figure out your sweet spot. What are some things that you do uniquely well, like that you're world class at better than pretty much everybody? And the exercise is you ask your friends and people that know you well, what's something that I do better than anyone you've ever met? And what you find in that exercise is the answers people give you often are things that you would never think of because you don't think mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. that valuable or that unique because they come so easy to you. You assume that they come easy to everybody and you undervalue them. And so I did that after I heard that, I think I heard it on a podcast or something. And so I went, I asked a handful of people, I asked TK, what do you think I do best? Like better than anybody that you know? And he said, you make people's obstacles seem small. Hmm. And I thought, huh, I never would have thought of that as like a skill or a thing that I do. It's nothing I've sort of consciously tried to do. And he's like, it's just who you are. Like when, when you talk with people, they walk away feeling like whatever they want to do is easier than they thought it was, or that the challenges to it are more surmountable than they thought. And that really stuck with me. And I kind of took the advice of this podcast that I heard it on of, Okay, lean into that. When people tell you that, that's something that they experience you as world-class in that thing. And there's something there that you don't even know because it comes naturally to mm-hmm. you. It's baked into who you are. And I, that's really stuck with me. And TK is a really good way of putting things into, you know, into words that are like very pithy and intriguing, like my good friend TK Coleman. Um, and so I, that stuck with me. 
And I'll, every time somebody says something like, Hey man, you really encouraged me to do this. I just smile like, okay, good. I'm like doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and it's not necessarily a deliberate, I don't focus on, okay, how can I go out there and make people's obstacles seem, uh, you know, surmountable, right, right. but it, it just kind of, it's, it's part of who I am. I don't know why, but Hey, that's what I've got. And, uh, I'm happy to do it. So anytime I can, cause like to me, things do seem, I feel like people view risk as way bigger than it really is. And the risk is almost all just mindset risk. And once you're mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. yeah, what's the worst that can happen? Like, why not? Yeah. Why not start a podcast? Oh, you want to interview that guy in your podcast? Ask him. Why won't you? And all of a sudden, like <laughs> having somebody just say, why not? Go ahead. All of a sudden it like makes you realize, oh, oh yeah. Like, I guess I could just do that, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, that that sounds oddly familiar. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite things, man. That's that you know that's really interesting. I I have found that it is very important to get the advice of others on what you do, what you're good at, mm. and be, for for a number of reasons. And I think I think that's a good quality for you as a leader. I mean, you you've you started two companies, at, at least two companies, and you you seem to be a natural leader. And I think. A lot of people need a leader who isn't just like pushing them from behind, but like, you know, making those obstacles seem smaller is, is a really good, a really good trait to have. The thing that's interesting about what you've done in the marketplace regarding education is almost, it's almost inverse. You're basically trying to tell people, don't do this. <laughs> There's this obstacle in front of you that is not something you want to try to climb over, which is which is a huge amount of debt and education. And obviously, I think it's for some people, and it's not for everybody. How do you perceive that in terms of like getting people to make these decisions that are a little, a little easier than they think. Cause not going to college is huge right now. It's becoming more acceptable, but it's still a big, big hurdle. Yeah. So I see college is the hurdle that people think they need to get over because what they really want, nobody just like wants a college degree, right? There are a few people that have the experience as a consumption good, but if you just want the college experience as a consumption good, you don't have to pay for it. You can go move to a college town and just sit in on classes and do all that. People want a career that doesn't suck. They want to not be homeless, as one school kid told me uh, when I asked him, you planning to go to college? He said, yeah. I said, why? Because I don't want to be homeless, right? They have this belief <laughs> that this very, very unexamined belief that in order to have any kind of decent standard of living and not be a total loser, you have this major obstacle. You've got to go through the debt obstacle, the monotony obstacle, the tests and exams, the whole college rigmarole is this thing you have to do to launch a career. And what we're trying to say, you know, what, what Praxis set out to do is to say, no, you don't need any of that. That's ridiculous. You have to work hard. You got to do some stuff, but it's way easier than you think. You want to launch a career? I can help you do that right now. You can be on your way mm-hmm. in, a, in your first real awesome job in a year or less. And by the time you would have been coming out of college five years from now, four years from now, you'll have four or five years professional experience You'll have a lot of different information that you didn't have about yourself and about the market. And you'll be out there kicking butt in the world, doing things that are interesting to you. And so yeah. the obstacle, it's, it's a shift. It's like, no, 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 it's not the obstacle you think it is. You're looking down one path with all these giant mazes and gatekeepers and the, the debt shackle you're dragging along with you. And we're saying, that's not, that's not the only path to a career. There's a much more direct one here with a few obstacles that are mostly psychological, that are mostly... Well, what if people think I'm weird? 
What if my parents tell me I'm going to be a failure because I don't go to... The, the practical outcome is like orders of magnitude better than what happens when you go to college and graduate. And it's provable. This is not, I'm not making this up. Like these outcomes are unbelievably better and it's so obvious. But the challenge is the psychological one. You've got to suffer for doing something outside the norm, outside of your parents' expectations, outside of the kind of status seeking thing. You go post online that you graduated from college or that you got an A, you will get absolute praise no matter how much of a loser you are (laughs) with the rest of your life. If you go post online that you dropped out of school or you're not going, you will get concern and criticism no much, no matter how much of a winner you are in the rest of your life. And so that's the real hurdle. But I think that's a lot smaller than five years of suffering and debt. Yeah. Well, I have noticed, this is just in the circles that I run in, which are typical circles that like, oh yeah, you got to go to college because, you know, that's the, that's the pathway out, you know, from, from child to career. Right. And it's still, it's becoming way more acceptable for people to take these, uh, what do they call them? These gap years where they like think more significantly about what they want to do. And that's actually admired, which is, is I think is a positive development in the right direction because then you're not just going as at age 18 doing something, you know, getting yourself to age 22, uh, doing, you know, why on earth would you think at age 18, you know exactly what you're going to be doing in four to <laughs> four to 10 years. And so people, the, the pause and the like, oh, I'm going to be thoughtful about what I want to do because I'm either, I don't want to waste my money or my parents' money or my grandparents' money or just anybody's money, whatever it is. I don't want to waste my life. Uh, so, you know, that that's becoming more acceptable. So I know our listeners can go back and listen to all about Praxis, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are actually familiar with Praxis. Uh, I do want you to give me maybe 30 seconds. What are some of the stats of like salaries and things that people are coming out have, having done Praxis? Like some some numbers is always helpful. And I just want yeah. to let you promote promote that for just half a minute. Sure, absolutely. So we've had uh, over 275 people have gone through the program, and we have a over a little over 90 percent of them get employed full-time immediately upon graduating the program. And the average age is just under 20. So these are people almost always coming right out of high school, no previous professional experience, Mm -hmm. no college degree. Average starting pay is just a shade under 50,000 a year. And that's, you know, that's age 20. That's no degree. That's no experience. That's after a a one-year program that has a net cost of zero. And, uh, you know, you're coming out getting hired at, at 50K in a real job. And so five years down the road, four years down the road, when you would have been coming out of college with a, a lot of debt, you know, you're, you're a, a professional with that many years of experience um, working. So it's been, um, it's been pretty awesome to, to see that, to, to see those results and just the, the lives we've been able to change. And, and I've always said, like, I started out, you know, as a young person trying to make the world freer, better place, kind of changing lives, right? Changing individual lives. What can I do to help this person, help this person? And I determined at some point that like, I want to take a swing at doing something bigger. There's changing lives and there's changing life itself. Mm -hmm. And I want to try to change life itself. I want to try to change the incentive structure for the whole world so so that patterns change that enable millions of people to live better lives, right? And And that's kind of the... I'm always seeking leverage, you know, it's to take the old give a man a fish versus teach a man a fish. I'm like, Mm -hmm. hey, how about I raise the capital to build a factory to make the rope that makes the nets that let people catch millions of fish? You know, like, where's the leverage? Let me, let me go back further. Yeah. And so I get super excited about the individual lives we've changed going through practice, but I get more excited 
by every one of those case studies, what it does is it changes the conversation and it changes the incentive structure. And every time another kid comes out of high school, that narrative of go to college or be a loser, sorry, I know you don't want to, but you have to, you got to go into debt, gets a little weaker because there's more and more case studies and the incentives and the information start to change so that life itself can have a different pattern now. Mm. That the dominant social narrative, which drives so much of our behavior because it's just too much work to think independently from the ground up about every single decision in life. So we kind of take on these social narratives and the narrative is college or a loser. So we just sort of take that on as the default assumption and changing that default assumption, changing that narrative. That's what gets me excited. Changing the default that that is a very appealing thing. I think for our audience, because we want, we don't want the default to be, you know, progressives versus conservatives. We want the default to be where people think of ways to be free, where people uh, have a respect for their human fellow human beings, you know, and they don't want to like tell them what to do. Like that's in, in the political world, that default is very, very different. It's like, how do we win? How do we, how do we dominate the the culture? Uh, and you've, you've sort of taken a different approach to advancing either, whether it's that you could even, I don't know if it's like your ultimate goal to pursue, you know, to push the cause of freedom, but it, you're, you're doing it along the way, no matter what, is that you, you are doing things more on the ground, as opposed to arguing abstractly about freedom, which you've done very well, uh, but your your efforts are more on the ground. And it reminds me of some quote, I don't remember who said it, maybe you do, uh, way, way back when I became a libertarian over a decade ago, I read this quote that the man who longs to be free will find a way to be free. And you kind of embody that. Yeah, I cannot remember for the life of me where that is too. It's like the man who knows freedom will find a way to be free. Something to that effect. Yeah, I even it. looked it up and I couldn't, I couldn't gonna, figure out. I'm going to have to Google that afterwards because I know it's yeah. it, it's somewhere and it's very inspiring to me. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I've sort of come along on my on my journey, you know, my intellectual journey, my career journey. Um, I, I have always felt like what excites me, what I want to do in life is to make people free including myself, right? I mm-hmm. want to live free and I want to help others live free. And that is absolutely the, the animating, um, you know, sort of the driving force in my life. And so what, what form that takes, as you said, like abstract ideas, argumentation, I actually really enjoy those things. Those are fun for me. Those are, they help me think through things and process. I like discussing ideas, but I, I realized at some point along the way that that is a, a, very, very limited and limiting way of trying to live free and trying to help others live free. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to- At some point, you got to pick up the ball and move the ball. Exactly. And when it comes to just living free on my own, sometimes getting into the, the debate, the argument, it like makes you less free, right? If you're like following every debate that's out there and trying to pick a side and f- perfectly formulate what's the right argument to have against this new idea. Yeah. Yeah. You just become like a slave to what other people comment on your tweets, to what's being talked about in the news. And so on the personal level, trying to like live free in my daily life, like what's the point of being free if I'm like constantly a slave to my own anger or passions or frustration or, you know, whatever Mm. went on in politics. And so sort of started there and this idea that, and and Leonard Reed, the founder of Fee has this great like video that I came across years ago, like of a lecture. It's in black and white. It's way back in the day. And he turns off all the lights in a room and he lights a candle. And he's like, you know, one tiny light can be seen, can pierce all this darkness, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, look, if you just live free as a free person, 
right? It's it's kind of like um, you know the, the the verse in the in the New Testament, like give people a reason for the hope, right? A reason for the hope that you have. People people if they come across you, right? You'll you'll know them by their fruits. If you come across someone who's living free, you can't help but be like, I want to know more. What are you doing? What are you thinking about? How are you living? What is your philosophy? And if you live in such a way that your freedom, uh, I think Albert Camus has another great quote. He says, you know, make it your goal to live so free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. And I just love that because it's not just like, hey, life is more fun and I feel better when I'm more free in a very practical way. But that's actually where the expansion of freedom for others starts. People, as long as they think something is not possible, they won't attempt it. And most people don't think that, you know, whether it's political freedom, personal freedom, freedom in their careers, that most people don't think that like government and all of its laws are good. Most people are not like big fans. Yay, this is awesome. They don't think it's, you know, this wonderful moral thing. They just think it's necessary. They just think it's inevitable. They just don't think there's an alternative. Most people don't think the way that they're suffering through a, you know, a, a job that they feel is sucking their soul. They don't think that's a good thing. They just think it's inevitable. And the best way to help somebody do something new is to show them that it's possible, is to say here. And so if you see somebody that just seems like they're living a little bit more free, man, that is the best impetus. That is where revolutions begin. And so bringing it back to what's within my control on an individual level, that's been huge for me. And I'm constantly trying to do that. It's a, it's a constant struggle. But the more I do, the more happy I am. And I think over time, the more I've seen, I have the ability to help others. I think it would be nice if you shared some of the ways that you've personally been rewarded, uh, not necessarily like monetarily, but just like you, you've been touched by how you've affected the people that are closest to you and around you in, in that way. Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the essay. I'm sure you have because you're very well read on this stuff. But uh, Isaiah's Job by Albert J. Nock. And he talks about in sort of the struggle for freedom and, and in his words, kind of like classical liberal ideas, he uses the, the story of Isaiah that here he is, he's out here, he's, he's following, obeying God and, and prophesying and telling people to repent. And he just feels like nobody's listening. And God basically tells him, there's a remnant out there. You don't know them. You don't know who they are. You may never meet them, but they're listening. It's not for the masses. It's for the remnant. And every time I'm having a hard time and just like, man, I'm just struggling, I'm toiling, I'm trying to trying to do these things, create these things, start businesses, trying to make the world more free. And it's just like, I'm just, you know, yelling into the, into the void and nothing's happening. I go back and read that essay. And it's so encouraging to me because I know, I know there's a remnant out there. I know. And, and, and the remnant, it's like when you, see, when you hear somebody or see somebody and you're like, yes. That's, that's somebody who's, who's doing it. That's somebody who gets it. You know, there's like this silent remnant. And when you get little signs of that, when you get little indicators, like you get an email out of the blue from somebody you didn't know existed that says, Hey, I came across this blog post of yours, or I heard you on a podcast. And I just want to let you know, I was really depressed and I felt like I was stuck in my job. And after I read your thing, I just decided that's it. I'm going to quit. 
And I went and told my boss, I had somebody who was working in an accounting firm and they were doing these like government contracts. And they were basically asked all the time to just like fudge numbers and do stuff that was just stupid and inefficient. When they tried to create efficiency, they were like punished for it because they were trying to bill more hours. And he's like, I had just been suffering through this. And there was something that I had written or said, and he just happened to email me and tell me that made him be like, that's it. This is is dumb. It's making me a worse person. I'm out. And once he did, he was like, I realized how much more capable I am than I thought. And I started doing accounting stuff on my own and just getting clients. And now I'm running a business and now I can like, you know, travel and do things and I'm starting small, but I feel free for the first time ever, you know, getting that kind of like story every once in a while. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's just such a huge, such a huge lift. I mean, people who have Mm. every so often, you know, run into somebody that will be like, you know, Hey, I saw your article about, you know, whatever, homeschooling your kids. And I shared it with my sister and she was really insecure about, she felt like she was doing a bad job as a homeschool mom or whatever. And it just like helped reinvigorate her. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is, is absolutely awesome. And, and every once in a while you get a really dramatic thing like, uh, Mitchell Earl, who works with me now at crash, amazing guy. And when I met him, he was interning at fee, the foundation for economic education for a summer. And he was already accepted and ready to start law school in the fall. And at the seminar we were at, we just had a couple conversations and, um, like, I think I helped him save himself from law school, which makes me feel like I saved someone from the fires of hell. You know, (laughs) not if you know you want to be a lawyer and you actually enjoy lawyering, that's a totally different story. But so many people, so many that I've met, good arguers, good thinkers and communicators, ambitious, eager. They get pushed into law school because it's like, well, it's high prestige. Maybe I'll get to argue. I get to, you know, study the Constitution or something. And they come out and they got like a quarter million dollars in debt. And the only way they can afford to pay the debt off is to take a job, a law job. And they're doing like merger and acquisition paperwork. I mean, the number of lawyers I've met who've been like, I tell everybody, don't go to law school. Like, I make good money. I hate my life. And so like when you see somebody, and to see Mitchell mm. now is just like this dude who's, who's fully alive. You know, and, and just to know that like a few conversations we had, again, it's almost like people have never heard anywhere someone say, hey, you have permission to do something interesting that you want to do. Hey, or rather, you don't need permission. Why not try it? And just like those two words alone, when somebody mm-hmm. says, if you ask somebody, what would you really love to do? And they say, well, I want to blah, 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 but I can't do it because blah, 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 blah. If you just say, why not? It's like something magical happens. And so anytime I can see little, little stories like that, it's, it's really exciting. It gives me a huge, a a huge boost because it it gets lonely out there. You know, I mean, it gets lonely sometimes when you're, when you're just, you're doing your thing and, and you're hoping that it's, it's doing something, but you don't see much evidence most of the time. And so those, those stories are really awesome. Well, and I'm sure you've also heard those stories of like people liked what they did for a while and then it just got stale and they knew that their their life was meant for more or for better rather than they were in the wrong position per se. That's the challenge is it's never done. Yeah. Is it, you know, you, you, <laughs> it's never done. And I, I don't think we would be happy any other way. I, I love the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorite books. And his idea, his description of heaven is so fascinating. It's not like this wonderful place where you lounge around on harps and, you know, eat grapes and, uh, you know, or lounge around on clouds, play harps, whatever. It's actually hard work. When you first get there, the people who arrive are 
heaven is so dense and so real that they are kind of ghost-like in comparison. And when they try to step on the grass, it actually hurts them until they harden up. They can't, you know, like eat the fruit until they've got become more solid. And even heaven requires growth because the opposite of growth is stagnation and death. That, that's hell, right? <laughs> and so, the, you know, hell is this very, in the book, this very comfortable totally boring, blasé, slow form of decay. It's not like burning in an intense fire. It's like a slow desperation that just kind of fades into nothingness versus heaven, which is requiring you to perpetually level up. And I think as much as it it sucks sometimes, there's a real emptiness when you don't have some kind of new challenge. And so that's the the beauty and the struggle of it, or the beauty in the struggle perhaps, is that you, you finally realize, I found a way to live free and I'm doing something meaningful to me. Well, in my life, it's been like, as I get older, the time spans get a little longer, but it's like, give it six months or give it 18 months or give it a couple of years and I'll start to be stagnant again. I'll start to be restless. I'll need something else. And I got to go through the whole process again of being like, wait, why am I doing this? What, like, there's... I'm starting to do more and more things that I don't like just because I was doing them before and I used to like them, you know? Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com. So, Isaac, you've done something that I've seen a, another person in my life who's a theological like person. I actually I I sat under him in in seminary and he publishes these books and I they they come out and I read them and I'm like, "Oh my goodness, I needed to understand this theology 4 years ago." And, you know, you you did this too. You came out with Praxis like a while before I needed to know about praxis. (laughs) Not that I shouldn't have gone to college. I mean, I'm happy with the degrees that I have and and it's all behind me now. Uh, But you also, you had that time like, well, is praxis for me? Like I was actually looking for something um, around the time you came out with praxis and I actually reached out to you and you're like, well, it could be for you here, 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 and here and some information. It just didn't turn out to be the right thing for me. Um, but now you're doing something that is for people who are like, all right, I'm already doing a job and you, you now have something for them. Yeah. So created this, uh, this new company because as I said, I get restless and I've learned to try to tune into that and not try to shut it down. And so Praxis is, is amazing. It's been amazing building it and it's still uh, doing amazing things in the world. But I, I kept having this notion that there's something potentially bigger in terms of reach, less, less depth and intensity for the people, you know, that, that do it. Like Praxis is a very intense thing for those who do it. It's, it's a massive life-changing thing. So less intensity, but, but more reach, right? And, and there's something here with the basic idea of how people think about their career and how they think about finding, like discovering what might be a good next step on their career, not discovering what you're going to be when you grow up for all of time, just discovering a good next step and then winning an opportunity in line with what you discover. And I think the way people approach it is like, okay, you go through, you just follow a bunch of rules, you pick a major, you, you know, whatever you get, 
you get a, a resume with a bunch of bullets on it. You shoot it out to like 150 places. That's the average uh, for people applying for jobs into their application system, which is a big giant black box where it goes and they either call you for an interview or they don't. And you just keep repeating this. It's a numbers game until you find a job that has a title that seems sort of in line and you take it. And then you just kind of like move from there to some logical progression of job titles through your career unless something's derailed. And I think that's just completely insane. That's not the way that it works at all. And that mental model, that map that people have in their minds is very damaging. It's very detrimental. I think your, your career is much more like a startup where you go out there and it's like, okay, what's my core problem that I'm trying to solve? And who do I solve it for? I got to have a target market and I got to have something that they see as valuable to them, more valuable than their next best alternative. And they got to have a way to market it to them and get it in front of them in a way that makes them say, oh, I see, I get what you're trying to do. I'm going to try it out. And I got to make it easy for them to say yes and give it a shot. And once they do, they say, I like this, this is worth it. And then with a company, it's not like, okay, great. We found a customer. Now we just kind of chill and it will just grow on its own, right? It's like a constant process of iteration and testing and looking into new markets and taking a turn you never thought you'd, you'd take. I, I just saw Slack, um, it's just a software tool a lot of companies use for internal communication. They just, they just IPO. So they just listed it on the public stock market and they, they're worth like $20 billion now, whatever. The company started as a video game company. They were, it was called like Tiny, Tiny Dot or something like that. And they were like making video games unsuccessfully. And they had some tool that they were using inside the company to communicate with each other. And they kind of realized almost on accident, if you're to, to, to believe the stories anyway, hey, maybe this is a product, right? And that ended up being the thing. And I think that's much more, and that's, that's a story with a lot of startups. I, I just heard the other day that Facebook the guys that were starting that, they saw Facebook as this like little side thing. They were trying to build, um, what was it called? Like Wirehog or something. It was like a file sharing, a music file sharing thing. That's where they were raising money for. That's where all their energy was. And hardly anyone was paying attention to this network thing that they had built as like a little toy on the side. And that turned out to be the business. So I think when you look at the model of like startups and the way that they typically work, that's more, much more similar to the way that your career is. You are your own startup. And so thinking about yourself in that way, that this constant process of discovering who's the market, what's the problem I can solve for them, how do I tell them that story and get it in front of them, get some feedback, get some, some value from that, and then sort of test the next phase and move on to where I go next. Okay, I just realized I went on for like forever with this huge analogy about startups. <laughs> you asked, what is Crash, <laughs> which is the new company? Um, so Crash. This is, is a long elevator ride, man. It is a that's this that was the worst <laughs> elevator pitch in the history of elevator pitches. So Crash is a career launch platform, and we try to help people discover roles that would be a good fit for them, build a profile of skills to showcase what they can do, and then launch their career by getting that in front of people who have opportunities for them, whether that's a, a full-time job, a contract work, freelance. And the idea is to kind of, it's almost like a, to flip the job hunt process on its head. You got a jobs board with all these you know, companies listed with opportunities and you go and look at them all. And then you like send your stuff behind closed doors. What if instead you had like a talent board where you've got all these people who are showcasing their skills in tangible ways, no resumes, but tangible things. Hey, here's a project I built. You know, hey, here's a podcast I created communicates that I know how to speak. I know how to do some editing. I know how to think, you know, I have some persistence because I did 10 episodes, you know, showcasing the tools, you know, how to use the skills you have in a profile that signals the value you can create 
and blasting that out to your network and to companies and to hiring managers so that they can see, oh, wow, here's somebody. I want this person on my team, right? And almost reversing that process and bringing it out from behind closed doors and saying, look, you got to market your skills and your interests because you probably don't know where the best fit is. Like right now, there's a kid working at a coffee shop in Iowa somewhere who has no idea that he would be an amazing business development representative at a startup in Boston. And he would love it and it'd be an amazing career step. And the, the person at that company, they have no idea that there's a kid working at a coffee shop in Iowa who would be a perfect fit. Because all that information is trapped. And unless he knows exactly the role and the title that he wants to apply for and all the buzzwords that they use, and he submits an application in just the right way to cut through the noise, that match is never going to happen. But if he can create a signal of, hey, here's the kind of stuff I'm interested in and the kind of things I love to do and my personality and blast that out into the world, the odds that now somebody in his network knows somebody in their network who knows somebody at this company who's looking for the right person that can go and look and say, whoa, look at what this kid made. That guy looks awesome and he's looking for a next career opportunity. Let me introduce him to my role, right? So that's kind of what we're hoping to do with this platform. And right now it's it's pretty simple. There's a, there's a free um, sort of career discovery tool. Um, you can go there and kind of get a personality match with some mm-hmm. roles that could be a good fit. And then there's a, a skills profile that you can build for free. Um, that we're constantly trying to update and improve to, uh, to really show what you can do so people don't have to just rely on bullet points on a resume. You know, a few months ago... Did the, did the elevator reach the top yet? Uh, I think we're... <laughs> I think I, I I think that was good, man. Um, I I would have stayed on the elevator to keep listening, so it was engaging the whole way through. <laughs> on the retake, that is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm biased, though. Anything you say, I'm listening to. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, like a few, I I think that's really amazing because you know, like a few months ago, somebody asked me for a resume, and I'm like, dude, I haven't made a resume in 14 years. I haven't needed to, and I, there's a little bit of me that's like, I refuse to. Yeah. Because who's asking for a resume? Now I realize that there are there are industries and things that, that can be pretty standard. And if you know if that's really where you want to be and you do some alternative and that's not going to get you in, sure, fine. But there, I think there was a phrase that you said, be your own credential. Um yeah. is, is is that something that's on your on your Crashco website, or did I hear you say that more recently in something else? Yeah, so uh, I hope you've heard it because I say it all the time, all over the place, and it's it's definitely on a lot of the crash stuff. Um, be your own credential. It's kind of the way that I would define everything that I was just talking about in that really long <laughs> elevator ride, <laughs> um, the imaginary elevator ride. And and the idea is like, look, if you're asking people to trust some third party, hey, I have a stamp of approval from, you know, university of whatever. Here you go. I got my GPA and here's my degree. You're basically asking them to trust some certifying body that you are a good, valuable person worth talking to. Now that communicates something, but it's pretty weak, especially now that everybody has one. And the idea that like, you got to go buy a credential. You got to go buy some certification from someone that makes you worth taking a look at. I think it's the wrong mindset. You got to be your own credential, right? You've got to create a body of work, a reputation, a digital footprint that signals to the world what you can do in a way that's more tailored to you, more unique, more robust, and more powerful than any third-party credential you could purchase from anybody else. And so I love that idea. Like if people Google you, what comes up? What do they see? If they find you on LinkedIn or your personal website, 
Is there any track record? Can they tell? Oh, okay. You know, Doug, I can, I can Google you and I can find out pretty quickly a lot of skills and abilities that you have because I can see that you've created stuff, you've written stuff, you've got a track record, you've got a, 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 you know, a digital paper trail, if you will, that speaks volumes about your abilities much more, you know, than if you're like, I, I see this with young people a lot. It's like, you know, degree in marketing. I want you to hire me to work in, in your marketing role. And I'm like, well, I don't know what that degree means versus somebody that's like, hey, I want to work in your marketing role. Check it out. I built this website for, you know, people who love colored flip-flops and I did a blog post on it every day and I built an email list up to 50 people and I sent out some emails to them and uh, started a Facebook group. It's like, oh, okay, I get it. You understand what marketing is a little bit and you've got some experience. It doesn't have to be that amazing, but it's so much stronger of a credential than just asking me to trust a a bullet point on a resume. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is like, they could be only very mildly successful and maybe even not that successful. And you'd be more impressed with their efforts and commitment and, you know, their grit. Oh, absolutely. be like, yeah, well, they just they just need they just need some you know somebody like me to tear down these obstacles, and they'll do even better. In fact, one of the things that's, that's probably the way you think, not me. Yeah, well, no. Well, one of the things that's beneficial about people doing stuff in the real world is that you know that their mindset is more realistic. Oftentimes, when people come out of some kind of institution, they've got some sort of certification. You know, hey, I'm certified in this, therefore now I'm qualified and I'm going to be valuable to you. It's like they're so clueless that it's kind of, it's kind of a liability. They Mm. come in with a bit of entitlement. If somebody's like, Hey, I created this YouTube channel and I had a goal to get this many listeners or, I mean, this many subscribers. And after a month, I only got half that. And here's my blog post breaking down why I think that happened and what I would do differently next time. Like, I don't care that you, if you succeeded or not, (laughs) I care that you understand how hard it is and you understand what you need to learn. And you're like open to learning it. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to to puff up yourself and make yourself look more qualified than you are. You just got to show me that you're out there in the world engaging in some stuff. And that's a lot more impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the akin to like asking your mom to get you a better grade. (laughs) It's like here, here, my mom can vouch for me that this is why I was a slacker a little bit. And this is why I'm actually going to be good for this. It's like, 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 here are my qualifications. An institution that I paid $90,000 to is willing to say I'm a good person. My mom is willing to say I'm a good person and my scout leader hire me. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know. Well, and the institution that you paid money to, they're in the business of making as many people look good as possible. So how on earth am I supposed to trust them? Right. I mean, I realize that's right, right. overstating and it. it but. It's, it's like, you know, the, and I mean, the relevance of what you're, of what you're sort of learning there to the, to the workforce is a whole other, <laughs> a whole other problem. I think it's pretty, pretty well known among employers and, and uh, starting to become more known among job seekers that like, there's almost nothing you learn in any of your classes, even very, very subject specific stuff. I mean, take marketing, stick with that analogy. You, you know, if you take a marketing class at a university, it's literally 10 to 20 years behind what matters in current marketing practices for businesses, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting to see the evolution of how education is happening. And, and, and I see, and I'm sure you see it even more uh, because you, you travel more and you meet more people than I do, that I think the crack is happening. And I think people are willing to accept that there is possibly an alternative. Like they can start to begin, they can begin to see that there is another world possible. They're not just being told abstractly that we just need to dismantle something and create something different in its place. They're seeing it happen. They're seeing people through either praxis or similar types of things. 
that people are like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go do, I'm going to go be my own credential. And uh, so I'm, I really applaud how you're, how you're out there le- leading that. And I think, you know, you, you were pretty well known in the libertarian world and you, you did this. And I think there's, there's a lot of respect for somebody who goes out and creates this sort of, this sort of opportunity. Another, another uh, term or phrase, I should say, that has really, really inspired me. And I almost, I'm pretty sure I think about this weekly, if not daily or many times a week, is the a title of your book, Don't Do Stuff You Hate. <laughs> and it's just like, I, I don't know where if that's just something that you came up with, but I, there's like the seeds of that are also in uh, Brian Kaplan's Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. Mm-hmm. And his, his whole goal is basically to make sure that parents, that you don't have to hate parenting. And if your kids don't like soccer, don't make them do things they hate. And I don't know if that's his phrase or if I'm just reinserting that back based on our conversation here, but dude, that, that advice, you just make really good book titles and headlines <laughs> and, you know, like, and, and one liners and I need, I need you on my business to do this, but yeah, don't do stuff you hate. What, what's behind that? Yeah. I, so, um, everything I do is for me first, right? So like when I write, when I blog, <laughs> when I do a book, I'm doing it for myself. I'm telling myself. So like, I need to hear that. I need to tell myself that every day. Don't do stuff you hate. And I found at every step in my life, when I'm like real unhappy, it's always pretty simple. It's like, hmm, let me look down and see how many things am I doing every day or every week or that I hate. Wow, boy, it's gotten, it's gotten to be a lot. How did that happen? You know? Okay. It's time to figure out a way to reduce this number of things. And I think what's been helpful for me is realizing that don't do stuff you hate. It doesn't actually make life easier. It makes life better, but it makes it harder. It's a lot easier to just do stuff you hate or just sort of that you can tolerate than it is to do the work of eliminating those things. And I think it's also for me, don't do stuff you hate is a way of simplifying and relieving the pressure of trying to figure out what you love. That's too, that's too hard. That's overwhelming, right? Like, finding out your one true calling, I I feel like that's kind of a process over time. And so if you say, I'm going to go in the opposite direction, I'm going to simply remove things that I know I hate that make me feel like I'm becoming a worse person or I'm losing my soul, that they're sucking energy from me. And that's easier. It's easier to identify a handful of things that are, are draining me of energy than to pick the one true calling that will make me feel wonderful. And, and that's going to change over time as well. And so mm. when, you, when you realize that, it's actually an invitation, especially when you're young, to try more stuff because as long as you don't hate it, you should try it. Why not? If it's a, a real opportunity in front of you, yeah. instead of stressing over whether it's the perfect opportunity, do you hate it? Well, no. Okay, jump in because you have no way to really know until you try. And then after you try it, you start to realize, okay, I hate parts of this. I don't want to do those anymore. Great. Now you're adding to the list of things you hate and you're going to avoid those. And and as you do that more and more, what you start to find is that you're narrowing down on something that you love and you end up in a really unique place. That's a great fit for you just by the process of subtraction, by just removing things that are, that are making you not who you want to be. So that's been a process has been really helpful for me and I'm constantly reminding myself of it. So, um, I definitely, I have always used writing as a cathartic act for myself. I just, I blog every day. It just feels good. It helps me get thoughts out, process them. And, uh, and then sometimes when I get excited about a theme, I kind of 
turn one of those into a book <laughs> as a way to remind myself of what I'm trying to keep myself accountable to. Yeah. You know, I have, I have kind of two responses to that. Two thoughts about what you just said. One is people who are critics of capitalism would say that all of this stuff and all of this, you know, insistence on individual freedom has made us spiritually impoverished and we don't connect with people and we don't, you know, find ways to flourish inwardly. And we, you know, we don't have, I I don't know all the different ways of saying it that that are sort of non-Christian ways of saying it, but everything you just said sort of like runs counter to that. Like without this experience that we can even focus on how do I be my best person and avoid things that I just absolutely hate to do or the kinds of things that make me a person I hate being or whatever. Like I'm sure there was somewhat of that going on before capitalism to, to, to some extent, but you know, there's a luxury of self-reflection that we have. And I know that people have been self-reflective for, for eons. So I don't want to say that that's just a feature of capitalism, but I just, I don't see, I don't see capitalism as the problem to us being more true to ourselves or more faithful to God or, or whatever, whatever sort of, you know, fundamental thing you think we've lost. If someone's critical of capitalism, I think what you just said is, is, uh, is pretty, pretty counter to that. The second thing that I think of is, and, and this is, don't do things you hate could be taken a little too far. And I kind of wonder what you think here. Like what if, and I, and I don't. So children, my children, if you're listening to this years later, I didn't hate this, but like, what if somebody's out there and they just hate reading to their kids, but their kids love being read to, or like the little things in life that are worth doing that you just don't like doing. There is something about doing it for the benefit of someone else. Like how does this don't do things you hate, square with some Christian values of perseverance. And, and I don't, it's not grit. Grit is not in the Bible, but the, the concept of doing things for a better reason than just your own self, because it can sound really selfish. Do you, do you understand? You follow yeah, what so, the question is? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would say it's a great opportunity to examine your motivations for doing things and get on a secure footing. So if you, if you feel like you are, you truly hate, you know, reading to your kids and you're, you're doing it because you have to, some obligation, some guilt or shame that you feel, and it's making you like hate your life, your experience of life. I would say that's worth examining. Now, what, what maybe, what you maybe find out when you start examining is compared to what? So maybe I say, I hate reading to my kids or I hate exercising. Or going to church, but or I, like anything that we think yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brushing my teeth, whatever you want to come up with. I, but what I hate more is what happens if I don't do those things. Because if I don't do those things, I'm going to have these certain outcomes. I'm going to suffer in certain ways that make me depressed, lose my confidence. I feel I'm starting to have health problems that I don't want to have. I become limited in certain ways. When it comes to reading with your kids, you know, you might find that you lose a connection to your kids. Your kids aren't, you know, developing in a way you want. You don't have a relationship there, right? Like it forces you. It's it's sort of like an easy criticism from people who have never tried to, to actually embody this philosophy to be like, oh, okay, fine. Uh, I'm going to sit on the couch all day and do nothing. Ha ha, gotcha. And it's like, look, if that's how you take, don't do stuff you hate, then the message is not for you. Yeah. <laughs> if you're like a normal, commonsensical person, it's like, okay, what if I really tried to apply that? Then it forces this process of examination because I think a lot of times we do things that we, we say things like, oh, I hate this or oh, I don't like this too. Or we say things like, I have to do this, right? 
maybe you don't enjoy reading your kids. It's not convenient. I'm certainly been in that place before where it's like, I just, I'm too tired. I just want to go to bed. Okay. I got to go read to my kids. It's easy to sort of let ourselves off the hook by pretending that we are not the the free agent who's making the choice. Be like, oh, I got to do this. I'm forced to. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. But if you actually sit back and say, no, 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 I don't have to do anything. Why am I doing this? What are the trade-offs? What do I, do I prefer this to the other outcome? Now, when you say, okay, I've examined it all. And even though this is inconvenient, it is an investment in something that I value more down the road. So I'm freely choosing to do this because I value it for some reason. And now you go into it empowered and you don't get to play the victim card anymore. And, and I think that's a healthier foundation for those things. So I think it's always worth examining. You just have to understand that hate is more than just, you know, it's like doing things that are hard. That's not the same as doing things that you hate. You know, you have to, oftentimes to do what you love actually requires doing more things that are hard. Uh, to not do things that you hate is actually harder. Um, but it's just a, a question of what's what's really making you dead inside and compared to what other options. And, and by the way, I love what you said earlier too about how this makes you think that, you know, people are like, you know, uh, criticize capitalism for, you know, having no soul or whatever else. Oh, sure, it delivers the goods, but blah, blah, blah. And I think a lot of times what people long for is just relieving the burden of moral choice. <laughs> what people long for is like, yeah, well, when you're in like a basic level, you know, base subsistence farming commune, uh, you don't have to worry about finding meaning and all this stuff. Well, you know, if someone, let's just say like never sins only because they've never had the opportunity to sin, that's not called, that's not a, a morally well-developed person. That's a person who's ill-equipped for whatever travails might come later, right? And I think seeing the world, like we'd all love sometimes because we get tired and it gets hard to just have a world where like making bad decisions wasn't even an option. And when you have a, a world with a lot of abundance and prosperity, it means you can choose a lot of things. It means you can choose things. You, you can survive in a, it's very easily in an abundant world. So like food and shelter are not the main concern. So then it becomes, you move up sort of Maslow's hierarchy. Then it becomes about self-actualization and all these other things that are really hard and it's really easy to do self-destructive things there. And I don't think the solution to becoming a, a morally more robust human is to just remove all the choice. You don't become more robust at all. I, I love John Milton's essay, Areopagitica, and the closest thing I've ever written to like an academic paper, I wrote a, a, an article about Areopagitica. And, and he really makes this argument when it comes to free speech. There was these you know, laws back in England that, that banned any books that didn't have the official you know, imprimatur of the, of the star chamber, that they were you know, morally upright and whatever. And he's like, look, you don't make moral citizens by depriving them of the choice to choose immoral things. That that's that's not how it works, you know. Now, when you when you have little kids, you want to sort of ease them into the world. You don't present all of the uh, gravest choices to them all at once. But once you're a, sort of a the point of a, being an adult autonomous person, and the point of moral development is choosing the right thing when you could have chosen the wrong thing. And so, I think that's really important for those those critics of capitalism. It's like when you when you really get down to it, what do they want? They want a world where nobody is allowed to choose the wrong thing. And that's a world where nobody's allowed to develop morally.
Isaac, it's always been a pleasure to talk with you, and I will come up with another excuse to talk with you probably sometime soon. Before I let you go, I want to know, what are you reading right now? Like, what are some things that you're really... And I know you don't finish books, so maybe that you're like one chapter in, but you love the first chapter. I don't know. No, but, so uh, I, what, are you, I, what are you reading? No, I'm tortured with that. I feel this compulsion to finish books, and then... <laughs> <laughs> Even when I like, I'm trying to teach myself if I get to a point in a book where I'm like, okay, I'm not getting anything anymore to, to give it up. I'm trying to get better at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm reading uh, a book called- You mean you still struggle with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you got me over that hump. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm trying to make you free, but I'm still not free myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a completionist. It's this OCD thing, you know? I get it. So yeah, so I'm reading um, Secrets of Sand Hill Road, which is about the venture capital industry, basically right now on the audiobook. And then I'm reading uh, Unschooled, a new book by Carrie McDonald about the unschooling movement and philosophy, uh, which is near and dear to my heart. And then I'm reading Cryptonomicon, a sci-fi novel by Neil Stevenson, which is so, so long. It's like, I haven't read a book that long in a long time. I like short books. So I'm kind of picking that one up uh, when I need my fiction fix, mm, which yeah. I I often forget to do. And it's like same with like listening to music, reading yeah. fiction, listening to music. Every time I do, I'm like, I'm so much happier when I do this. I need to do this more often, but then I just, I forget. So trying to, trying to keep that going. Those are the three that I'm currently engaged in. Yeah. And I, I don't even want to look at my backlog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Isaac, again, thank you for, for being with us. Thanks so much, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. To the people mostly on the left and, and some people on the right who look at late capitalism and they see, let me, let me repeat that. Wait, wait, mostly, wait. We're, mostly, we're, we're, in, we're in early capitalism. I, yeah, I reject no, no, the phrase I know. late I'm capitalism. I'm repeating that. I'm repeating that. Kidding. I don't know why. I don't know why I said that. That's why I was going to stop. All right. Cut all that out, Chris. No, uh, that's good stuff. I like it. No, 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 no. Sorry. It's, it's B footage for the plus members. Maybe. <laughs> on those. Cut it out. Um, <laughs> um, don't put in clips that you hate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> touche.